the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Do you experience moments of self-doubt about your achievements? Do you think everyone else knows more than you do? Do you have a hard time seeing the value in the services you provide? Imposter syndrome is that little voice in your head that casts doubt and makes you feel like you're not good enough. It can stop you from moving forward and miss out on opportunities. Joining us today to discuss strategies to navigate the feelings of inadequacy is Elaine Pofelt, a small business specialist who is the author of The Million Dollar One Person Business, and Tiny Business, Big Money. Elaine is an independent journalist who specializes in small business and entrepreneurship. Her work has appeared on CNBC and in Fortune, Money, Forbes, and many other publications. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much, Joan. It's always so great to talk with you. I feel the same way, Elaine, because you are such a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, you and I had a conversation not too long ago, which led up to us doing this interview. And it was about imposter syndrome and how oftentimes we as entrepreneurs may have that feeling like we don't belong doing what we're doing. And and if we're doing it, maybe we're not as good as someone else. And so why do you think this occurs? Why does imposter syndrome creep into our minds? One reason, Joan, I think is because being an entrepreneur is a leap for many people. We're told that we should be employees by our parents, by our teachers, basically by all of society as we're growing up. And so simply saying that you want to run a business is an act of courage, and it seems a little defiant. So I think people have a tendency to say, hey, do I deserve to call myself an entrepreneur? It's kind of like being a writer. People feel like, you know, have I written enough to really call myself a writer? Or have I painted enough paintings to call myself a painter? There's not really a set credential. So when there is no credential, you can't go out and say, oh, I got a degree in whatever. So therefore, I am an entrepreneur. Um, So I think that is one reason it holds people back. And I think it's really important for all of us as entrepreneurs to do the internal work on ourselves, because if we're feeling inadequate and and we lack self-esteem, we're really going to have a challenge putting ourselves out there being the so-called expert in our field. You're so right about that. I think many of us have internalized the negative voices of people who criticize us in the past. For some reason, one negative voice can outweigh hundreds of positive voices. So one of the most important things for future and current entrepreneurs to do is to really interrogate and challenge those voices and ask yourself if they are realistic. Just because, for instance, one boss didn't like one project you did, does that mean you're completely incompetent? Probably not, but it may have made you feel that way at the time. So part of it is doing that internal work and, and seeing if what you believe is actually realistic. Um, a good way to challenge it is to get real-world feedback. When you uh, put your work out there, if customers are happy with it, ask them for a testimonial or ask them for feedback on it and see what they say. That, that will often give entrepreneurs confidence. It's been reported that 
entrepreneurs and freelance consultants are more susceptible to imposter syndrome because they rely on self-confidence to make a living and they don't have the support network to help them when these moments arise. You know, we as entrepreneurs tend to work within this bubble. We're really removed from the type of support that can help us get through that. Do you agree with that assessment from what you've seen? Yes, and I think it's it's very telling that in my book, Tiny Business, Big Money, 45% of the entrepreneurs who are at seven figures belong to an entrepreneurship group, and 37% have a business coach. It's important to have positive reinforcement with whatever you do, and if you're living in an area where most people have traditional jobs, you're not going to get much reinforcement for the way that you're choosing to live. Entrepreneurship is a type of career, but it's also a lifestyle because when you don't have a steady paycheck coming in every week, two weeks, month, you have to manage your money differently. You may be less inclined to do things like put a big vacation on a credit card because you know you're going to have to hustle up the work to pay for it, where someone in a corporate job knows that their paycheck is coming and they can chip away at it. So you'll have to make different decisions from other people. And at times it can be lonely and alienating. If you're around other people who are pursuing their dream as entrepreneurs, you'll be able to stick with it more uh, in, in those circumstances. I think a big problem that comes from these feelings of inadequacy, from al- allowing those thoughts to infiltrate your mind, is when the time comes to price your services and someone says to you, what do you charge for that? I think that's the biggest issue that we have because I know for myself, sometimes I almost choke on my words when I'm trying to tell someone what I charge for a service. All the people that you've interviewed, how did they overcome that? How were they able to own their pricing? The best way is through research. I believe if you're selling something new to you, Personally, for instance, when I branched out from writing articles for publication to ghostwriting books, I didn't have a good sense of exactly how much time it would take to do a book. And I did a couple of books with um, preliminary clients where I probably didn't price them appropriately because I really was guessing to some extent. Then at a certain point, I contacted other colleagues who were about the same level as I am in my career, and I asked them what they charge. And I find there are a lot of friendly competitors out there. They can't take on any more work than they already have, so they can be a good source of information. And then when someone asked me what my pricing is, I could say I charge the going rate for people at my level in this field, and it's about this, you know, and and of course, it's a negotiating room depending on the parameters of the project, but for me, that was really helpful. I think for for a lot of um, the entrepreneurs, there is an element of research. For instance, in my first book, The Million Dollar One Person Business, I wrote about Brooklyn Inn, which is a direct-to-consumer brand that sells sheets um, with designs that they found men were requesting like plaid. Apparently, many sheets are made in prints that are more popular with women, like floral prints, for instance. And they went on the floor of big box stores. It's a husband and wife team that run the company. And they asked people what they were paying for sheets and what they would be willing to pay for sheets of a certain quality based on thread count, etc. And that was how they arrived at their pricing. Sometimes what's interesting is if you price your service too low, it will not sell as well. People will think the quality is lower. And that's what happened with um, Nomad Lane. It's a company that is run by Kish Fasnani and Vanessa Jaswani, a married couple, and they sell travel bags. And initially, they priced them at $100. And then everybody um, who was buying them said they were underpricing them. And when they doubled them to $200, they did better. Um, the same thing happened. There, there's another um, entrepreneur in tiny business, Big Money, who runs Insolia, which sells inserts for high heels. And she went to a pricing seminar, which is another strategy to get your pricing right. And she was undercharging for them. And when she doubled the price, they started selling better. People equate price with quality. So it's important to understand how much people are currently paying for something that's of high quality. And that goes not just for a product, but a service. For instance, if you're a blogger 
there may be people in some parts of the world that can charge $10 for a blog because the cost of living is a fraction of what it is in the U.S. But if you're in the U.S. and a blog goes for X amount and you're charging much less, people may wonder, why are you not as good of a writer? So I think it's important to understand that there's a psychology of pricing. There's actually a really great author named Herman Simon who has written a number of books on pricing. Um, one of them is called Confessions of a Pricing Man, and he runs a whole pricing consultancy in Germany and uh, has studied pricing around the world. So if you want to learn more about it, that is a really good source of information. But, Aline, that's really a, a great point that you make because when you do your research and you make it, based on factual information, you remove yourself from the equation. And and the reason I I wanted to bring this up, there are so many entrepreneurs that I know who do everything right. You know, they, they have the experience, they build the company, but when it comes to pricing for their services, they get stuck. And so I, I think that was really wonderful advice to do your homework, do your research and remove the emotion from it. It's important to price things correctly because of sustainability. If you price things too low, what will happen is you won't be there anymore in business. You'll have to get a job and then you won't be able to help your customers. So when you find yourself faltering, it's important to think about how can I do this profitably? You don't want to overcharge people, but if you're undercharging, how long will you really be able to stay in business unless someone else is completely subsidizing you, which most of us don't have? you really need to price things so that you can be there to serve your customers and they will want you to price things appropriately. They don't want to cheat you or, or underpay you. The good customers don't because they'll want to work with you again. And I think that's an important thing to remind yourself of. You're of no, it's like your own oxygen mask. You're not of any help to anyone else if you're, you're going out of business. And the interesting thing about imposter syndrome Every person that I've interviewed who's very successful has said at one point or another, he or she has felt the same way. But sometimes when we're feeling that way, we think we're the only ones. A a lot of the people that you've interviewed who are very successful in their businesses, did they go through this as well? It comes up very frequently when when I speak with them. There's, There's always that fake it till you make it moment. I think that's what every entrepreneur realizes. When you're growing professionally and you're growing as an entrepreneur, you're going to find yourself in situations where you feel a little bit in over your head. It's like you're in the deep end of the swimming pool and you have no idea how you got there or how you're going to stay afloat, but somehow they always do. Um, And that's a sign of growth. So if you look at that feeling as a sign that you're really challenging yourself, I think it's a way to get through it. You don't want to push yourself to the point where you're about to have a nervous breakdown from it because <laughs> that's too hard. But but that little nudge to yourself to, to challenge yourself is a good thing. I know um, James Taylor is a public speaker. He does keynote speeches. And a lot of times when he's developing a new speech, he's still working on it, practicing it with different rotary clubs. He'll start marketing it ahead of time. Um, before he's actually finished the speech, but he knows that he'll keep on practicing it until it's ready. So by the time if someone does decide to hire him to come and speak to their company, it will be ready by that time, but he has to market things in advance. So that's, that's another strategy is, is to make sure you're putting in the work to get to the point of proficiency that you need to be to achieve a big goal. And that helps to take care of the imposter syndrome. I'm sure at the moment of closing the sale, when the speech isn't fully baked yet, there might be a little twinge of that. But he also knows that he will go out. He calls it the ham salad tour. He'll go to anywhere that will have him come speak to keep on working on that speech. So that that is a useful technique, I think, to put in the work, view it as a practice, but but set goals that you know you can eventually get to that aren't so far ahead of where you are right now in terms of your capabilities that you will fail. Part part of imposter syndrome is good. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you really can't handle it yet because then you will have a terrible sense of failure. And part of being an entrepreneur is self-knowledge of how much you can grow within a certain amount of time to get to where you want to be. 
And that self-knowledge is so important, Elaine. I see a lot of people on social media. I I look at things with a marketing PR type of eye, and, and I see some things that people are doing, and it just looks like they're throwing a lot of spaghetti on the wall, seeing what will stick. And mm-hmm. they really don't <laughs> appear to have a sense of who they are as an entrepreneur. Do, do you find that a lot? I think there is a period in the beginning for every entrepreneur where they're trying to figure out what their niche is. For, for the businesses I write about, success usually comes with defining a very narrow niche. But in the beginning, maybe you have several areas of interest and you're not sure how to narrow them down. I remember when I started my business 15 years ago, I was so happy to be a freelance writer because finally I could write stories for multiple publications. And if there was a story that the one publication I worked for didn't want it, because they weren't interested in that topic, I could still find a market for it. But what happened was I put myself out there saying, I write about entrepreneurship, careers, parenting, because I have four children, green living, because I'm interested in it, et cetera. And I think it's harder for people to pin you down when you have too many specialties. So I decided just through trial and error, the first couple of years of running my business, it was better to specialize in entrepreneurship and sometimes those other interests would overlap but it's hard to become so knowledgeable about the subtopics you're interested in that you can be competitive so for instance even though I'm a parent and I've raised four children I'm really not up on the latest thinking on parenting in terms of what's being discussed in the media what articles have been written already who are the leading experts on parenting I couldn't tell you those things so I'm at a disadvantage relative to entrepreneurship where I'm completely immersed in it all the time. So I think with some of these folks that are throwing spaghetti at the wall, they're in that phase that I was at, but you can get out of it once you start to realize where can you be most competitive, what do you enjoy the most, what are you willing to spend extra time thinking, reading, learning about, what areas of your business do you enjoy? The people aspects the most, what are the most profitable? You'll start to figure those things out, and then those extra things will fall away. Um, but it is confusing. You're right. In the beginning, when someone isn't very well-defined as, a, as an entrepreneur, it is hard for people to know if they should hire them or not. Yeah, I, th- I think what happens is you become afraid that if you get too focused, you're going to miss out on markets that will bring you money, but it's actually the opposite that happens. You know, it's kind of counterintuitive that being so niche-focused is the right way to go, but when you think about it, how many solopreneurs or owners of very small businesses can take on Amazon, for instance, if you're an e-commerce entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. The ones that I have written about that have been successful have had very narrow niches and that's how they've succeeded. For instance, Rim Sports is a company that sells CrossFit gear in colors aimed at women. They realized that there weren't a lot of, of um, brands that were targeting women with you know bright colors. Everything was pretty much in black and there were a lot of women getting into this sport and that's how they've been in business for several years if they tried to take on all the CrossFit manufacturers in the country, they, it, they would never succeed because it's too big of a market. And I think everybody can benefit from that type of thinking. Where can you go really deep on something? And in this case, it was personal because Angie Raja, who um, co-founded the business with her husband, Colin, was doing it herself. And she hated the gear that was out there because of the colors. So she knew that there were other people like herself and they did a lot of market research. And that was how they found their niche. Even Brooklyn, in which I mentioned the sheet company, there are a lot of sheet companies that know that the majority of linens are purchased by women. So they come out with a lot of prints that target women. And Brooklyn saw that, well, what about the guys that have to outfit their apartment or their house? They're not finding a lot of prints that they like, and that was they went deep with that. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of lessons in that for anybody who has a limited budget, because if you have more money, then you can you can introduce a lot of different products or a lot of different services. Um, but if you're small, you won't be able to support all of those things. It's better to just go high quality with one. Pauline, how do you? think the past few years, all that we've been through, how has that impacted 
entrepreneurs and small business owners? Do you think we're coming out of it? Are we coming out of it differently? It's very interesting, Joan. I was just thinking about this this morning, and I think for a long time, most of us were in a semi-funk, if not a full-blown funk, because we were cut off from so many of the things that we enjoy in life, like social connection, going to the gym, you know, for our kids, being able to go to school and see their friends. And then it was a slow transition out of pandemic mode. But now I see a lot of people getting a second wind. During that time, there was a lot of introspection and people were thinking about what really matters to me. Am I happy with my lifestyle? What am I going to do once the pandemic is over? Where am I going to go? Who am I going to see? What do I hope to accomplish? And we have a new appreciation for all the freedoms we have back again. And I I see a lot of people doing different things with their business than they were doing before. For instance, I wrote a story about Sol Orwell, who runs examine.com, and it's a site that sells reports about nutrients. And what he did during the pandemic was instead of organizing the site around vitamin D and vitamin C, he reorganized it around different health topics like heart disease, uh, trying to get pregnant or different things like that so that people could find the nutritional information they needed for their problems, and he decided to scale up the business. He was one of the original million-dollar one-person businesses. For years, he ran the business with all contractors, and now he decided to hire employees. He wants to get to nine-figure revenue. He thought that he would have more of an impact by scaling up. Others have decided to double down and stay very boutique and have more time for their families or other things that they're interested in, charitable work. And that's been very interesting, but I think there's a new authenticity where people have really gotten to know themselves and what they want. And they're also so worn down, they can't keep up any pretenses or things that they feel they should do just for the sake of what other people think. I I think in a lot of cases, people were going to jobs that they didn't like, and they felt like, okay, this is what a good... uh, person does, you know, who has a family and a house, they go to a job that they hate, they suck it up, they get on the train, they commute. And I think people got so worn out that if that was not serving them well, they said, hey, wait a minute, I'm a person too. I'm so tired of that. I have a toxic boss. I don't want to go on the train anymore. It takes up too much of my time. I never have time to work out. I never have time for my family. I'm going to make a change, even if it means making some financial sacrifices. Or I'm going to find a job where I can work from home and maybe have a side hustle. There are a lot of people who started side hustles during the pandemic. I think there was a big re-examination and also this phenomenon where it's almost like they just did a thousand push-ups and their arms are shaking. And they can't force themselves to do anything else that they don't want to do. So now what's happened is it's cleared space for them to do what's really true to them, whatever it is, without regard for what society thinks they should do or their parents think or other people that they feel are dictating to them what they should do. They're doing what they really want to do. And that could be one of the biggest blessings that came out of a horrific time for all of us. And um, if you'd like to learn more about Elaine Pofelt and her work, you can visit ElainePofelt.com. And once again, Elaine's books are Million Dollar One Person Business and Tiny Business Big Money. Elaine, in about 30 seconds or less, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your best tip to help an entrepreneur or small business owner succeed? Keep showing up, do your business. Today you would a yoga practice, a martial arts practice. You never know what day the miracle will come in your business if you don't show up for it. But if you do, it may just surprise you on the day you least expect it. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. You are always such a wealth of information, and I look forward to the next time you'll come back on the show. Thank you so much, Joan. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. 
Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. It's time for To Your Health. Joining me today to talk about how hypnosis can be an effective way to quit smoking is Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis and sound practitioner and the founder of Metro Hypnosis Center. Mary offers online hypnosis to people around the world. She's the author of the book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, Clear Your Mind, and Step Into Your Power. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joan, for having me. So Mary, smoking causes damage to the body, which can lead to long-term health problems. But it's a hard habit to break because tobacco contains the addictive chemical nicotine. As with heroin or other addictive drugs, the body and mind quickly get used to the nicotine and cigarettes. So let's talk a little bit about when someone wants to quit, that person makes the decision. What are some of the challenges that a person will experience when quitting? One of the things you mentioned is that it's an addiction. That's that's why smoking sometimes is challenging. It's a habit and an addiction with the nicotine. So sometimes when people quit, they and everyone's different because the nicotine seems to affect different people. Some people I work with have really not a lot of side effects, just like a craving. But other people go through like a detox in their body, the sweats and all of that. So everyone does that differently. But so they just have to realize that they need that commitment and but to be aware that there will be some cravings or strong urges for it. And that's where hypnosis comes in to help you deal with that, to give you the tools to fight it and become the non-smoker. So how does that happen, Mary? How does hypnosis help? Typically, when I work with someone, we first create a script about becoming a non-smoker because it's very individual for everyone. So yes, we can have a generic for people to use, but if you really want to get to your trigger points, um, I actually under- get to understand your habits, um, what, when are you smoking the most in different locations, and then we create the script on that. So we create like a scenario, you becoming a non-smoker, we add positive affirmations, and it gives the motivation to quit smoking. So at the end of that session, I read that to you in hypnosis, so we plant the seeds of you becoming a non-smoker, and then you listen to that recording um, of the script that I create for you. So every day you're getting that reinforcement and the, and the support, because that's what it is. People need support when they're quitting smoking. And then each session built upon the next, we try to understand what the cigarette is giving you. What's, what's your reasons that are the real triggers? So stress is one of the biggest triggers. And that's one of the things that it can help with. So I teach people uh, self-hypnosis to help you stay strong if you feel that need to smoke and that you can push that craving away. How effective is hypnosis in getting this done? Hypnosis is very effective. I can't say it's 100% because it's going to depend on your motivation, your commitment. But I'd say for the most part, what I see in my practice is at least 90% effective. But I always check in with people. I kind of assess people where they are on their journey of quitting smoking and look for a certain level of motivation. So I look for like a six or more motivation to quit smoking um, so that they are doing it at the right time to succeed. So it basically helps get to the root cause of why someone smokes. Right. And that's my my, uh, program with hypnotherapy is we're really trying to understand what that connection is to the cigarette. What's the cigarette doing? And, you know, if you're a non-smoker, you may not understand that that cigarette is it's like an old friend. So it's actually sometimes some sadness comes in the sessions because you're losing an old friend that's been there for all the good times and all the bad times. It's always been there. So there's an emotional component as well, which I find in a lot of sessions because, you know, not even a person has been there for people like a cigarette has been there. So it's releasing that and releasing that connection and filling yourself up with more of the positive and and your own support and that you can handle anything on your own. Mary, can you offer a few tips to help someone quit? Sure. Um, My first thing I tell people when they're going to take a cigarette, pause. 
try to check in with yourself to see why you're wanting that cigarette. Are you stressed? Are you bored? Um, And if you can push away that and distract yourself, that's what I would tell people to distract yourself and see if that goes away. And a lot of times if you distract yourself, you'll move on. Also, smoke with your other hand. Make it uncomfortable. Put the cigarettes in a place that's not so easily accessible. So you have to become a chore to get the cigarettes. Like let's say you're driving, normally that would be your smoking place. Put them in the trunk so that they're not easily accessible. So those are some good tips to start weaning yourself and quitting smoking. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more information about Mary and her work, you can visit her website, MetroHypnosisCenter.com. Once again, Mary, thank you. Thank you, Joan. We'll be right back. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Our next guest, Vicki's neighbor, believes that we'll be more fulfilled when we're authentic. She's here today to discuss how we can show up in the world in a way that reflects who we are and our value. Vicki is a leadership coach and author of the book, Authenticity Reawakened, The Path to Owning Your Life Story and Fulfilling Your Purpose. Welcome, Vicki. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Joan. I love your work. Vicki, we hear so much about being authentic. Sometimes I think that word might even be overused. Can you explain to us what it means to you to be authentic? Sure. And I agree completely with you. Uh, You know, in my view, I believe that authenticity is knowing who you are, knowing what matters to you, and showing up in the world in a way that reflects that, but only to the extent that you wish to do so. I think one of the reasons why authenticity has become a bit of a buzzword is that people think it's the same as being completely transparent, and that's not what it is at all. It's really about knowing yourself and then deciding what you're going to stand up to and for in this life. Why is this so important? I think at the end of the day, we have to realize that we we are here for a reason. And I think, you know, that another buzzword is purpose. So when you really think about at the end of your life, when you look back, you want to be able to say to yourself, I lived well, I gave of my heart, I loved people well, I did, you know, a great job while I was here, I did my best. I think that that's so important. And if you can look ahead and say, you know, that's how I want to end up, I think then you can say, okay, what are the things that I need to to actually do? You know, a quick example is, of course, we all say that our family comes first, but does it really? Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. You know, in the moments that count, were you there for the people that you care about? Were you there uh, when something really mattered uh, in the world? And it's these little things um, that, that add up in our lifetime. Also, I... I spent 42 years in corporate roles in my career, and I know that people are miserable when they're not able to contribute in a way that feels true and authentic to how they work and who they are and what matters to them. So I think it's important, and if I can help people in some little way show up more authentically in who they are, then my work here is is done, and that's really my purpose. Well, from the time that we're children, we are told how to behave, what to think, what to do. We live our lives with all of these expectations, many of which are not even our own. So do you think that's why we struggle so much with this? We're trying to conform to what other people expect from us? Absolutely. And this is why in my book, what I do is I ask the reader to go back to, and you've talked about this in some of your work too, about some of the moments in our lives that really have created who we are to really understand those times. So for example, you just talked about, you know, from the time we're young children, people start telling us who we are, what we, how we should show up, all of those things. So if you go back and you start to understand those moments in your life that have made you who you are for whatever reason, then you can start to kind of deconstruct them and say, okay, what value do I take out of those? And, you know, the fact is that there are no perfect parents. Um, So, you know, sometimes some of those things, you know, they had great impact on us, but, but we have to sort of say, at this point in my life, 
that's not really important to me anymore. But this is, and that's what I'm going to spend the rest of my life focusing on. But Vicki, how do we figure out what our true core values are? Because like you said before, we say to ourselves, well, this is what I want, but Mm -hmm. it may not actually really be what we want. So how do we uncover that? (laughs) Right. You know, I think a lot of times we have voices in our hearts that tell us this is right, this is wrong, this feels right, this feels wrong, and we just ignore that little voice. And, you know, Oprah is famous for saying that often that little voice keeps speaking to us louder and louder and louder. And sometimes, unfortunately, it has to be a boulder that hits us to wake us up and let us know that, you know, we need to take one path versus another. Um, So I think that that's one way. But as I'm talking to readers in my book about understanding these pivotal moments and where your values come from, you know, a quick example is when I was a child, My parents lost our home to foreclosure, and I was 12 years old. And that moment in time was a pivotal moment, of course, to me and my family. When I go back to that time, um, what actually happened was we moved to a community that was much more nurturing for me. I had competitive, studious peers. It was a really great thing at the end of the day for me personally. But the value that I took from that is that you know, financial um, acumen is really important. Uh, Doing your homework is really important. Showing up and contributing um, to classwork and those kinds of things were really important. And now as an adult, I, I know that those are the things that formed me. And as an adult, I spend my time and my money and all of my effort helping other students you know, do well in school and invest in education and all of those things. So it's a core value, but it really stemmed from that time in my life when I was 12 years old. And also I'm really financially um, sound. That was really important to me too. So I know why I am the way I am. And each of us has many stories like that. For most of my life, because two years before I was born, my brother had passed away. And somewhere along the line, I, I developed this need or desire to take care of my parents, to take care of everyone else. And so I became a caretaker and and a people pleaser. Part of it was because I felt that was my job. The other part then became, it was my way of feeling accepted and loved. And I think a lot of people do this. We give up what we want and it's hard for us to stand in our own authenticity because we're afraid we won't be loved or we'll let someone down or, you know, that's how we get our value. Absolutely. And you know, Joan, we all want to be loved and accepted. That's just human nature. So what you have found is that there, and a lot of us find as we age and and get more experience in this life, is that there are some um, things that just are not healthy for us, and we have to pay attention to what those things are. Um, Being accepted and loved is great as long as it is uh, reciprocal relationships. And, and those kinds of things. So understanding, you know, if you're always giving and feeling bad about it, because sometimes that's what happens. We do all the right things and then we don't feel good about it. If you feel bad about it, pay attention to those feelings and understand where that's really coming from for you. And obviously your example is a great one. You understood, oh, I need to be loved. I need to be accepted. I'm the person that's always the caretaker. But you don't want to end up feeling resentful for that. And if you do, it's one of those things. Pay attention and understand where it's coming from um, because, you know, we want to we give and contribute in this lifetime, but we want to make sure that it's serving us, uh, serving us well. A lot of times people come to this realization like I did when they go through a really challenging time in, in their lives and they really have to make a decision which way they want to move forward. I would like people to come to this realization without having to go through those challenges. And that's why I think the work that you do is so important. Thank you. And, you know, underneath all of that is really fear. And in my book, I cover quite a bit about fear. And that is, you know, the fear for a story like that is I'm fearful that I won't be loved or I'm fearful that I'll be alone or I'm fearful that I'll be rejected. And those are painful things. And so once we come to the the understanding of what that fear actually is, and you kind of can give it a name, it becomes a lot less challenging for you as a person because you can overcome it once you name it. 
Vicki, we're going through some challenging financial times. If someone's listening to us right now and they're saying, well, yeah, this sounds great. Find your purpose, find your passion, be authentic. But I'm just trying to make ends meet and put food on the table. <laughs> what do you say to that person? I, I, I see you and I hear you and I have been you. So, uh, you know, I totally get that. And so this is where I think when you're thinking about your daily work and the interactions that you have with people, okay, sure, you have to have a job and, and you found one that is compensating you in a way that, you know, meets your needs or at least meets many of your needs. You know, it's fine to stay there, but then ask yourself, what can I bring to this job? A lot of times I was a chief human resources officer for many years and, a lot of times people would be frustrated like that at work, and I would say, if you don't like something here, what's one thing that you can change? What's one thing that you can do? You can, you know, join an employee resource council if you have some time that you'd like to give and, and change the thing that you're miserable, miserable about. You know, find a, a good friend at work, somebody that you look forward to talking to. Uh, stand up for something that isn't working well, and you can do that really professionally. Um, but, you know, the little things, um, stand up for yourself. So if something isn't working well, a lot of times people don't have no idea that you're unhappy about something. You know, as a manager and a leader in my organization, you know, sometimes I, I think something was going really well and somebody wasn't feeling that same way, but I wouldn't know if they didn't tell me. So there is a way in my book I talk about how to address conflict with others. So, you know, again, there's a pathway to explain, you know, what can be better and focus on that until you can find something that um, meets your needs even more than the current position you're in. The book is Authenticity Reawakened, The Path to Owning Your Life Story and Fulfilling Your Purpose. If you'd like to get more information about Vicki and her work, you can visit VickiZnaver.com. That's V-I-C-K-I-Z-N-A-V-O-R.com. Vicki, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? Well, I believe that life is short, so don't spend, uh, spend your time trying to be someone that you're not. You'll always be, you know, a cheap imitation otherwise. So there's a lot of peace that comes with doing the work to know who you are, knowing what means the most to you, and then showing up in the world in that way. Um, there's a lot of satisfaction with that, and I think it's something that we all should strive for because it's why we're here. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us. This is such important information anytime. But now, at the end of the year and the beginning of the next, people spend a lot of time reevaluating their lives and thinking about how they want to move forward. So I think that it's even more relevant. So thank you for spending this time with us. Oh, thank you, Joan. And again, thanks for all you do. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Did you know that a person will walk an estimated 150,000 miles in his or her lifetime? That's roughly the equivalent of walking around the world six times. The feet take a lot of daily abuse from walking, running, jumping, and climbing. So naturally, they are subject to many different problems. Hi, I'm Dr. Anand Joshi, a podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Here are a few tips to help you keep your feet in shape. Wear shoes that fit properly. This can help prevent worsening of deformities such as bunions and hammer toes, as well as prevent painful ingrown toenails from occurring. Keep your feet clean and dry. The most common cause of athlete's foot is having excessive moisture between the toes. Keeping your feet dry reduces the fungal load on your skin and helps prevent athlete's foot. Cut your toenails properly. Improperly trimming toenails can lead to painful ingrown toenails as well as skin infections. Protect your feet in public areas like showers and swimming pools. Plantar warts are commonly caused by walking barefoot in locker room showers as well as around swimming pools. Stretch the leg muscles daily. This will prevent stiffness from occurring in the joints of the foot and ankle. This can also increase blood flow to the soft tissues of the foot and ankle. Keeping your feet healthy is important if you're going to be able to go the distance. If you'd like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. 
As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She is here today to discuss when perfectionism leads to unhappiness. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Odette, for the sake of this conversation, how do you define perfectionism? What does that mean to you? Well, someone that is exhibiting traits of perfectionism really thinks that they will be happy when something happens, right? They're very future focused, but their expectations are kind of unrealistic. They think that they're, they're caught up or they're focused on their idea of how something should look or how something should be or how someone should be, right? But they tend to focus mostly on the things that are going wrong. And they think that by focusing on these things, they are going to be happy. They think that when things are perfect, they're going to be happy. But in reality, it's an unrealistic expectation. So they kind of set themselves up for not being happy because it's just not possible for things to be perfect. It's not realistic. So a person that, that is a perfectionist really hates mistakes or they believe that there's a right way. And sometimes they come across as being a little self-righteous or rigid Sometimes you can sense some sarcasm and they will treat other people or sometimes their partner with contempt. But a lot of times it's just a result of trying to quiet their own self-judgment or their own fear of other people's judgment. So you just touched upon how perfectionism can lead to unhappiness. How can it lead to unhappiness in a relationship? Well, perfectionism, it leads you to always feel frustrated and, and, and disappointed with yourself, but also frustrated and disappointed with your partner because your partner's not living up to the ideal that you have, right? You have these ideal standards and your partner's just not able to live up to them. So not only are you feeling frustrated and disappointed, but your partner will end up feeling anxious and frustrated as well. And they may believe that no matter how hard they try, they can never please you. So in a relationship, the perfectionist kind of tends to lose sight of what really matters. And they don't realize that there is no perfect, there is no right way. And sometimes when you get so focused on that, it comes at a cost of real love and connection with your partner. Yeah, so many of us, we live life based on what is supposed to be and not what is. Exactly. And sometimes your partner is doing their best or they are giving you love. They are accepting you. They are doing things for you, but we tend to notice just what they're doing wrong because of that ideal of perfectionism. It really does get in the way of what you already have. So Adette, what can a person do if he or she sees themselves in, in what you just described and they're realizing now that this need for perfectionism is making them unhappy? Well, the first step is definitely awareness right? Awareness that it's happening. Become aware that you are, it's a perfectionist tendency, right? When you're feeling frustrated or disappointed and have some self-compassion, right? Compassion for yourself and also compassion for your partner. We have to remember that we each have our own map of the world and there really is no right or wrong way, right? Especially if it's going to come at a cost of your relationship, right? Or of love and connection with your partner. We want to focus on what you do appreciate about your partner, what you do appreciate about your relationship, what your partner is doing right. Really, you just want to be more present. You want to let go of that judgment and criticism and develop a practice of gratitude and appreciation. 
Odette, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. Or as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit cyacyl.com slash Odette. Fear is one of the most powerful forces in life. It affects the decisions we make and the actions we take. And while the primary role of fear is to keep us safe, it often becomes the obstacle that stands between us and our dreams and goals. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. You can allow fear to stop you from taking action, or you can face, challenge, and overcome it. There are rational fears, the ones that are based in reality, such as encountering a bear while on a hike in the woods. And there are irrational fears that keep us stuck. These are the stories we tell ourselves about outcomes we believe will happen. With no factual basis, they usually begin in childhood and remain with us until something is changed. These can be labeled destructive fears. While it's not always easy to recognize our fears and how they keep us stuck, Here are a few clues that experts say may help us determine if our life is guided by fear rather than joyful freedom. You see only the downside. You avoid anything new or unknown. You stay small. You are indecisive. How can you move past the fear? First, become aware of what scares you and how you respond. Keep a journal, and when you recognize a fear, jot it down. Then write down how you react when fears arise. Keep track of anything that seems significant. Learning about your fears can help you transform them. Once you are aware of your thoughts and responses, you can employ a few strategies for change. Use your imagination for good. Instead of letting your thoughts take you down a dark hole, imagine yourself in the situation with a positive outcome. Take a time out. Don't react immediately and give yourself some time and space for analysis. Clear your mind by focusing on your breath, taking a walk, or participating in any activity that calms you down. Then, when your mind is clearer, analyze the situation with a new perspective. Talk to a friend or advisor. Gaining insight from someone on the outside can help you see a situation in a different light. Remember, fear is nothing more than false evidence appearing real. You can allow fear to stop you from taking action, or you can face, challenge, and overcome it. The choice is yours. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more empowering tips and strategies, visit joanherman.com. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>